Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Wednesday the 28th of the 7th. Michael, how have you been? Very well, thank you. So I suppose we'll crack right into it. Someone who we thought, Michael, well I thought at least, had just gone away, was no longer going to be someone we ever had to think about, has popped back up in a interesting little story. Catherine Zapone, the former Minister for Children, is back in the news because she's just received a new post from the government, which was not advertised. It doesn't appear to have been revealed to anyone. It doesn't appear anyone else ran for it. It seems to, in fact, just be something that Catherine Zapone was given. And it also appears that she was given it without the Thishok knowing about it. All sorts of fun things happening here. We had, I think, believed that Catherine had gone across the wide Atlantic Ocean, possibly near to return, certainly near to be yet involved in Irish public life. As you say, this does not appear to be a position that was advertised in the public press, but rather one has the impression it's a position that has been invented, created ex nihil, if you like, and created by Neil Varadkar, possibly. It's the impression we're given from reading the newspapers and from chatting is that Michal Martin knew nothing about it when until it was planked in front of him at a cabinet meeting and uh, it was given to him more or less as a fait accompli. We are told that Michal was not happy about this. Michal was in fact very unhappy and fuming and furious and all that, but that didn't stop Michal just going, oh, well, I suppose, well, what can we do? It's it's done now, rather than say, well, I'm Tishuk and no, she's not fucking having another job. Also, it is. it sounds like a fantastic job, doesn't it, Gary? A, a job I think that either you or I would have been very happy and indeed qualified to take. She's going to go around the world defending freedom of expression. Why do we need to appoint somebody from Ireland? Well, why does the Irish government need to appoint anybody, wherever they're from, to go around the world defending freedom of expression? Why is this a good thing or a necessary thing for our government to do. Well, we have we have human rights priorities across the world, Michael, which we must protect. I think a, a better question there, Michael, would be, why, if, if, assuming this position needs to exist, I have heard some people say that it was a position we were actually meant to fill years ago and just never bothered to because it's a UN position, so who cares? Why wouldn't it be someone from the Department of Foreign Affairs? We have a diplomatic corps, actually quite a good one, Surely this is something they could do. Maybe in the Department of Foreign Affairs or the Irish Diplomatic Corps, they could not find anybody who was passionate about freedom of expression and foreign travel. So, yeah, I I kind of feel if you offered someone 15 grand for at maximum 60 days work, you'd have found someone. Is that what, that was one of the other questions that not had, had, had initially was unclear was what exactly the job would involved involve and what would the new remuneration would be? And we're, we're talking fifteen grand, is that it? Pascal Donahue came out and said that you would be paid a pro rata rate that would be on the same level as middle management in the Department of Foreign Affairs. The journal is saying that's likely to be thirteen to fifteen thousand before tax as it's on a pro-rata basis. Now, obviously, Michael, that means it can go up. And it'll be interesting to see exactly how high it can go up when you include expenses. Because I imagine this job involves quite a lot of travelling, Michael. Yeah, I see lots of foreign travel. 
I can't imagine she'll get mileage for the foreign travel, but would expect to get very decent exes when she's travelling. I would Im also, let's face it, you're retired essentially, and somebody says, we're going to send you around the world. Now, I imagine that there are places in the world, Gary, where you and I we prefer not to have to go to defend freedom of expression. I, I've South Sudan, for example, or Eritrea. However, if there was a conference on freedom of expression in, say, Mauritius or the Maldives, Bermuda in the winter, Brazil, Japan, I, there are lot, I think the world is full of many places that could be very attractive to go on the on the Irish taxpayer's dime. Flying, I, 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 I imagine, business class. You know, we've got to recognise that Sapone brings many strengths to this role, but there are some weaknesses that we might want to be concerned about, Michael. Like, I don't know if you remember in about 2015, to, sorry, it would be 2016 after the election, it was alleged that Sapone perhaps didn't have a great under, you know, spatial awareness. Like, wasn't good at telling the distance between points. <laughs> she, was, she was claiming she lived 25 kilometers away from the doll because that meant she'd get over the next five years somewhere in the region at 80,000 in travel expenses. Yeah. And yet when it was the Sunday Times, when they ran her address through the AA's route planner, it said she only lived 22 kilometers away. And that might seem like a small distance, Michael, but that is big money. If you're a politician looking to get some travel expenses. So obviously, you know, if we're going to be sending her flying around the place, we'll need some way to check that, you know, she doesn't, for instance, get to Paris somehow through Budapest. I, I, I imagine that there will be people involved in the Department of Foreign Affairs who will be doing all of the booking of her flights for her. Like, that's not the kind of thing that the lady would have to do for herself. And you know what? Gary, sometimes you can have a bit of a, a bottleneck or a rat run and you you don't want to go across there because or maybe you're aware that he, there's a lot of traffic in a built-up area you don't want to add to it because it's causing distress to the residents so maybe you end up taking a slightly more circuitous uh, uh, journey but which ends up coincidentally at being 25 kilometers as opposed to 22 kilometers and then you get in the uh expenses zone outside the interior one of the other also and that just is one of those happy accidents but there was no intent on the part of the person to elongate the journey for that purpose just to, just to explain how big a difference this would be using the current scale you obviously claim travel expenses if you were a td based on the distance from where you live to the doll if you are within Dublin and under 25 kilometers, you can claim currently 9,000 euro a year in that expense. If you are above 25 kilometers, whether you're in Dublin or wherever you are, but under 60, you can claim 25,295 euro per year. I'm a very trusting person, Michael, and I would never imply that someone might go a deliberately circuitous route in order to gain an additional, you know, five-figure sum every year for doing nothing other than, you know, driving a little wonkily. But I understand why some people would have those concerns. And I think we've got to recognise that. Well, yeah, yeah. There are, there are cynics and bad-minded people out there, Gary. There's no use pretending there aren't. But then again, Michael, it's the travel uh, allowance, which is... 
I would, I was going to say it's widely misused, but it's not widely misused because it's basically just part of a TD's salary. Yes. So it can't be misused because it's designed specifically so that it can't be misused. Or is it designed specifically so that it's always misused? I, I, I always struggle on the differentiation there. I think that's what philosophers would call a distinction without a difference. Is it worse if it's designed so you can never corruptly claim it? Because it's simply so corrupt in and of itself? That seems like a problem. That seems like enriching oneself. Mm. Well, anyway, as I said, I'm not, I'm not a suspicious man, so we don't need to question too much. I would be, in this context, slightly more interested in her bona fides as somebody who was passionately, passionately, Gary, dedicated to freedom of expression, as opposed to, say, regu- regulating language against homophobia or something like that. Yeah, it's never, it's never quite been clear what exactly is happening there. And then... They bring up the uh, the fact she was involved in the the uh, the Eighth Amendment, the referendum on that. And so I, for all it's it's called, you know, they're saying this is about free expression and things like that. It seems to be a more general promote our human right views. Now, I one thing I will point out about this story, Michael. Yeah, the Irish Times did this beautifully. That they have the story up, and the heading is this. Thishock not told of Zapone appointment to UN envoy role. Here's the subheading, Michael. Cabinet agrees new 10-year package for capital spending of 136 billion euro, which is 45 billion more than the existing national development plan. Oh, that's a lot of money. It is. Particularly a lot of money to appear in a subheading. <laughs> it's, it's a lot choice. I, I, would, I give you that. It's a lot choice. Um, I would have thought one was slightly more important than the other, but I don't have the job of organising the sub-editing in the Irish Times, and I'm not likely to. I I do like that this is brought to the cabinet by Simon Coveney, and Michal, Michal is apparently very unhappy with this, or at least journalists are being briefed that he was very unhappy with this. Yeah. And assuming that's correct... So he has this thing dropped on him. Basically, it's a, it's a, it's fait accompli. It's done. We did it. Finnegan have done it, and he folds, and he just goes, "Well, okay then." And you know, lots of stuff happens in Irish politics, Michael, that I disagree with, but I can see why it's done, either for ideological reasons or for strategic reasons, or just because the people involved personally gain from it in some way. All of that is understandable. Why the fuck do Finnegale want Catherine's opponent in this role? That is the two hundred thousand dollar question. I haven't a bogey's notion. I mean, there must be must there must be a, a decent selection of ex Finnegale TDs and senators or lawyers or academics out there, people friendly to the party or historically connected, that would like a bit of a junket job like this. Why would you give it to somebody? Who have, they've topped up their pension, they're doing nicely. What is, I don't know. I, I, it seems to me, once upon a time, these jobs never got out of the party. Fine Gael to Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil to Fianna Fáil, Labour, God bless them in their day, masters of their of placing the right people in the right places when they got into government in the 90s. Absolutely brilliant at it. But 
I don't. Why? Why does Simon Coveney want this woman to have this job? I mean, the only thing I can think of is that Zapone was appointed as a, a special envoy to the UN when we were looking to get ourselves appointed as members of the Security Council. And maybe this is a reward for that? Seems a bit of an odd one. I suppose it makes as much sense as any any other theory. Also, by the way, I think you, you when you said uh, Michal Martin at least has been briefing journalists to the effect that he was ready, I think that's worth reflecting on. If Michal was really that pissed off and that annoyed about it, you'd imagine that Michal would have found a way of at least delaying it till it could be discussed and then maybe just, just putting the kibosh on it. If he really cared about it, is this Michal just spinning it because he knows this is not going to go down well with the troglodytes and the muck savages that principally make up the Fianna Fáil voters and party these days? Now, if that was the case, and I suspect it's not actually, I think he just got rolled over. If that was the case, it, this is a very strange thing to do because it just makes him look weak and whingy. The whole thing makes... I. Michal, yet again, I think, has just not... Why would you let it out? Why would you tell people that they had done this to you? That's, that, I suppose, is my question. Why would you admit this? It just makes you look weak on the one hand and then whingy and whiny on the other. Because now you're saying, they did this to me, they rolled me over in Cabinet, I had to take it, and now I'm going to tell you about it because I'm really annoyed. Which just... There is no angle of this story where Michal Martin comes out looking well. Beyond that, Gary, is that even if he didn't like this, and he was rolled, then shut up about it. Why tell everybody you got rolled? I, I don't see what upshot or advantage there is to you, as a politician, a party leader, Taoiseach, to go around telling the press that you got... Basically, that Simon Calvary and Leo, and, and Leo Varadkar ganged up on you and made them give you your lunch money. Bigger boys came along and made me do it, sir. Jesus, God, Michal, really? Is it possible that Fine Gael have simply been in so government for so long that they've simply gone mad and giving a paid position <laughs> to Catherine Zappone made some sort of sense? That is also a possibility. As a, a couple of friends of ours, I think, have commented today, this is the final and definitive proof that Fine Gael needs a little time in opposition because it's just it's starting to do things to their brain, uh, which is unfortunate. There, it's starting to corrode something. Something's going wrong in there. Reaction to this has not been terribly positive. You amaze me. There, you know, people are saying things, Michael, like cronyism and you know jobs for the boys and inside. Uh, Inside connections, stuff like that. Um, almost as if it was a bad thing for it to be let out that no one else had been considered and there were no postings about it and no one is quite sure where the job came from or what it entails or what the expenses will be or what the actual salary will end up being. Almost as if those could be bad things to let leak. Well, yeah, I saw people in rather bad mood bad humour, bad faith, quoting some Fine, Fine Gael manifesto document where they came out shaking their fists. We will root out all forms of cronyism and insider chicanery and down with that kind of thing. But Gary, come on. 
It's a little country. It's a political appointment. They're not going to give it to a stranger. Why would you give a job to a stranger? A stranger is someone you don't know. Why would you give a job to somebody you don't know? You give it to someone you do know because you know they'll do whatever it is you want them to do or can do whatever it is you want them to be able to do. So it goes to Catherine. Of course, God, really, we still come be giving out about cronyism in Ireland. Really, yes, maybe it is. But. I can just, I can see them internally being like, but it's only 15,000 a year. Now, did you, did you see Pascal try and defend this? No, I missed that. For a smart man, it was a, it was not a smart thing to do. People basically put to him that, you know, the optics of this could be seen as cronyism. Mm. And um, <laughs> he said that, well, she would only be known by a small number of, uh, or a few members of the cabinet now. <laughs> really? That was it? Yeah, that was, that was it. Ah, the current cabinet. Ah, no. Well, I knew her a bit, I suppose, and, and Leo would know her, and Simon would know her, all right. And, ah, other than that, I mean, sure, half the cabinet wouldn't know her that well. I mean, most of them wouldn't have even been around for dinner. No, I mean, yeah, technically she was a minister in a Fine Gael government, but, like, yeah, that was a uh, long time ago, and most of those lads have gone, like, ah, sure, you know yourself. And you kind of read it, and you're like, do you think you're helping? <laughs> well, maybe he doesn't. <laughs> you, you don't. Oh, God. Anyway, it's, it, it's face it. In the great scheme of things, as you said, Gary, they're talking about 140, what is it, 100 and what billion 10-year plan? 136 billion for the national, or for the capital spending for the 10-year package. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the great scheme of things, as insider D, insider baseball and corruption and cronyism goes, this is very, very small, small potatoes. Well, I think I think the problem here is that for them, if this actually becomes a story, is that it's small potatoes and it's understandable. Yes, that is true. Yeah, if people start looking at this and think that actually just looks a little bit grubby, it's not even severe. It just looks bad. Like you, we constantly see this. Large stories just don't catch the public interest because they're complex or they can be argued against. Or just takes time to understand them. This is just... This person got this. There was absolutely no attempt to give it to anyone else. They used to work together. Yes. Anyway, as you said, luckily enough, you probably can't claim mileage on this one. <laughs> I hope not. Mileage to Phnom Penh. From Zapone, from a former minister to a current minister. The Irish Times has a, a wonderful story, Michael, uh, which is about affordable housing. And what is affordable housing? And it might please you to know, Michael, that the housing minister has, according to the Irish Times, conceded that if a house costs €600,000... It's not affordable. Oh, God, give me six hundred grand. Okay, let's 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 do let's let's do the numbers then. Now, if you're a first-time buyer, you only need to have ten percent for your deposit. If you're not a first-time buyer, you need twenty percent deposit. Okay, so let's, let's assume we're talking. So we're talking to 
we're talking about we'll say first time buyer so you need 60 grand so that's 540 thousand so you're going to get what three and a half times your gross salary so imagine it's a couple right so we want a couple so seven seven so 54 seven eights or 56 so you're, you you want a couple both of whom are earning in and around 80 grand a year to barely qualify for the mortgage and who have succeeded by the way in saving up 60 grand of a deposit if they don't have a dad or a ma to give it to them so um a couple both of them were earning 80 grand a year would that be the average kind of wage in ireland gary you're looking at that would be a household with a combined income of 160,000 before tax yeah if you look at the cso now the cso is all over the shop it's they try michael they do legitimately try but they're just compared to foreign countries the cso is garbage in relation to the quality of stats they put out and the pace they put them out. It's almost like, you know, we either don't care or we don't want there to be good stats. We're very big fans of the Dutch COVID site, I know. I must say, I, 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 I'm tempted, in fact, to go and look at other Dutch government sites to see if they're, they're as good. They do a really lovely job on that. The British sites are also actually quite good. So if you look at average annual total earnings, now this is from 2019, because that's what revenue has in their statistical yearbook of Ireland 2020. Now again, this is average, this isn't median, this is anything like average, is 40,283. So let's say you have two people in a family, no children, no dependents, nothing to make the mortgage process worse, basically. Mm Mm-hmm. They together will earn €80,566. They will then be able to get a mortgage of €281,981. So with the deposit, you'll probably be able to get something in the 300000 range, like low 300000 just on that point. But here's the interesting thing. We take that average wage, we double it. The husband is earning 80566 and the wife is earning the same thing again, right? Yeah. Then we do that. We put that into the mortgage calculator. You could get a maximum mortgage of that of 563000 Cool. Now, in order to get a mortgage for a house that was 600000 you would have to have 60000 So if you had the 60000 then yes, you could technically afford that mortgage with this, but it is close. Mm-hmm. Like you're twenty thousand above it, and if you were not a first time buyer, you have to have one hundred and twenty thousand as a deposit. So that's obviously going to really be a stumbling block for a lot of people. Even if you are earning one hundred and sixty thousand a year, to save one hundred and twenty thousand, it's not going to be quick for your second house. The thing here is that could be people who already they're already living somewhere and they're looking to buy a second house. It could also be people if they're older who had houses, let's say during the crash and things, lost a house, were renting for a while, 
These things happen. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Yes, 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 yes. This could be a situation where someone has a family home and wants another, but it could absolutely be a situation where someone does not have a family home, but is technically not a first-time buyer. So anybody who has at any stage in their lives previously owned a home would, of course, not be considered a first-time buyer. But that, just because at one stage in your life you had a house, doesn't necessarily mean you have a house now. Because, yeah, that's, that's a point that hadn't occurred to me, actually, Gary, but you're quite right. Yeah, it's it's more common than people think, but it's not something you would think of most times because you kind of assume first-time buyer, second-time buyer, clear sort of categories, distinctions. Basically on that, this whole a 600,000 euro house is not affordable. It's not even that it's not affordable. It is simply unachievable for most people with the mortgage restrictions in place. If you were a single um, income family, you'd have to be on four times the average annual total earnings in 2019 to even be in with a shot of this, and that's assuming you could hit the deposit. But Gary, why in the name of God did he pick a figure like 600,000 in the first place? Why did any, did anybody in Ireland think that 600,000 was an affordable house? So this is, this is slightly unfair to Dara O'Brien, who is, for those who aren't aware, the housing minister, who said this. Yes. The journal went to him, and there is a building. Um, there is a building site in Poolbeg in Dublin, in Dublin 4. And that is being built up as basically a new suburb. And it's unclear how much the affordable housing there is going to cost. So one council official told the journal that affordable housing there could end up costing as much as 600000 per unit. I think that there's nearly 4,000 homes planned for the area it's a 37 acre site so he he was responding to that okay it's like I, I, I slightly puzzled on what basis these houses are being defined as affordable i mean unless they're falling into the category of social housing that these are these are the houses that that have to be allocated um to councils for use in social housing but that because of the cost, the build cost, that the the cost that they will come in at to the the authority is six hundred thousand, which is something we predicted some time ago would happen when they changed the the law the regulations. So here's something you might like, Michael. So the, obviously the law is that ten percent of the new homes must be sold to Dublin City Council for social housing. Yes. Simon Coveney, when he was Minister for Housing, if you can remember that disaster. Mm-hmm. He basically, in order to get the councillors to agree with the with this redevelopment plan to build this thing, yeah, he came out and said there was an agreement that an additional six hundred and fifty affordable homes would be built there. Now this is the kicker, Michael. Right. The agreement did not stipulate how they would be delivered on the site or how much what would be classed as affordable housing would cost to buy. Yes. Well, there will, I mean, not maybe, there will be a constraint. The constraint will be the build cost of the houses. So if the houses are being built within this context, they're going to be at that. It's, remember, there was a development, I mean, at a much smaller level, which didn't make maybe this kind of news. Remember, there was, there, there, there was a development in Dawkey, or was it Kalini? And, it was, and because of the built houses of the cost, that the a certain percentage of the houses had to go into <coughs> social housing, for to be purchased or taken on by the um, by the council, and it had previously been the case that builders could 
do so could either simply give the money to the council and the council could then use them that money to to finance housing itself or it could build houses uh to a, to a certain value somewhere else but they decided the decision was made that that wasn't an acceptable we wanted mixed income housing development socially mixed developments but that meant that when you had all these houses and they're all at the same price and same spec and same finish that you're going to get situations where you had very expensive houses being used as social housing same thing came and remember there were the apartments down oh that it's near the the horse and jockey pub you know there were those um there were, there were apartment building, there were building apartments, one and two bedroom apartments, but again, at a price which was way beyond what you would have reasonably expected for what you could call social housing, or certainly if we're now calling it affordable housing, which is obviously a misnomer. These are so, these are houses which will go into the, will be sold to the council, but the metric will be the, 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 the build cost, which will be the build cost plus the, the land, and they're coming out at a certain price, and that, just doesn't look like a very sensible way of doing things. What I find interesting here is obviously he's responding to a particular thing. But if we wanted to look at affordable housing, what would actually be affordable? If you are a single income owner, if you're single or if you're married and only one person there works for whatever reason, you can get a maximum mortgage if you earn that 40000 the average annual income, of 140000 Right. Now, assuming that you had a deposit on that, and you like you were stretching as far as you could go, you're looking at a hundred and fifty thousand to buy somewhere. I just don't think that's going to happen in a lot of places. No, I mean, even if you had two people on it, I mean, yeah, it's it's substantially better, and you're yeah, you're going to get you know two eighty, three hundred thousand, and depending where you live, that might be perfectly comfortable, but it might not be. And I, I brought this up partially because I think it's it's a bit of a ridiculous statement to have to come out and say well obviously if a, if a horse if a house costs 600,000 and the vast majority of people in Ireland couldn't even it's not even that they wouldn't be able to afford the repayments legally a bank would be prohibited from even offering it to you yes to come out and say that that is is not affordable is bizarre on the face of it but we don't really have many conversations as a country about what affordable housing should actually be if you want a situation where the average person can afford somewhere to live, what kind of price do you need to be looking at and how do you get to it? Because part of it is going to be um, simplifying building processes, things like that, but it's also looking at the financial side of it. And there are other countries in the world that have systems that allow people who would earn kind of the average industrial wage to have property. may not be a house, maybe an apartment, may not even be a terribly nice apartment, but it can be done. And for all of this, where we talk about affordable housing and we need to do this and it's a terrible tragedy, I don't think I've ever seen a paper where anyone has actually just sat down and said, this is what the average person earns. This is what they could afford on a mortgage. How do we get to a situation where we are building things that can cater to these people and those above this? Well, I think there's basic... In Ireland, it's devolved now that there are essentially just only two answers to that question. One is people saying, well, we'll just have to just let people build as many houses as we can get them and then accept the fact that some people will simply not be able to live in certain places. And the other answer is, well, we're just going to have to just take over the process of house building completely and socialise it and make the government respond 
responsible for the provision of housing, except for maybe a very small group of very wealthy people. But that the great bulk, great bulk of housing will be supplied as a basic need, we'll say in the same way as education or health is, by the state. We seem to have fallen into a weird space where we don't want to deal with any issues related to, to building and mortgages and that sort of thing and home ownership. But we also don't seem to want to implement many of the things that you would see in countries that have long-term rental markets. And it's far more normal for families to rent rather than own. We don't seem to yeah. want to implement any of those things either. We just don't seem to want to move on either direction. And so nothing improves because no one seems to have any idea what they're doing. It's not even that they're trying things and they're not working. For the most part, they're not doing anything. And occasionally something big will be done. Or you know, you'll have like the pool bank development, which is a massive development and should have a substantial impact. But they tend to be one-off large things rather than actual, we've changed the system and now it might be better. Yeah, I think that, listen Gary, to what said, we've talked about something before. It seems to me that every time the government has decided to get involved in this part of the economy, they have either done things which have so demented the market that we have ended up getting into weird misallocations of resources and very poorly, uh, shall we say, poorly chosen sites for expansion and development when the market, if it left alone, would not have built houses and those it would have built houses elsewhere. But that, as a corollary, it actually ended up forcing the costs of houses where people wanted them, they forced those costs out because of increased costs in, in labor, land, and in uh, materials. On the other hand, we've also they've they've gone into the business of an incredible detail in at, at times it feels in regulation about what we can build, and I can't see a willingness at all in that this government or any politician is going to say we're going to actually lower standards which is effectively what they would have to do if they wanted to be serious about lowering the build cost of houses in this country. And the build cost of houses in this country is high. They would actually have to be willing to say, we, were, we are willing to accept lower standards of houses. And that's not, going to, that's not going to go well in the press. That's not going to sound like the kind of thing that people want to be saying. And you got, of course, you, you could, I, I absolutely think you're right. I think if we sat down and had a, a long, proper, detailed, intelligent, balanced, open-minded discussion about all of the factors that go into what makes the price of a house the price of a house, then we would be in a position to identify those things that we as a society were willing to do in order to ameliorate, ameliorate the costs and make it possible for people to buy houses or to come to a conclusion, do you know what? Maybe not everybody's going to be able to buy a house. Maybe not everybody will want to buy a house, but we can put in other other systems where people will be able to rent uh, in the long term and still be able to save and still at the end have have some have 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 a pot for their 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 pension. In some ways, people look at their house as that kind of their single biggest long term investment, and then you get to a certain stage in your life when your your children, if you have children, are gone. And you can you can move, you can downsize, and you can liquidate that asset and provide extra income for yourself at the uh, after you at the end of your career. We're not having that kind of conversation at all. And geez, the level of really obvious illiteracy in some of the conversations is scary, Gary. 
Anything in particular come to mind? Well, when you have people coming out saying flatly and boldly in the manner of experts that the price of housing has nothing got to do with supply, that seems to me to be just on the face of it mad. I have seen three or four Irish academics make exactly that point, at least one of whom is meant to be an expert in the area. And I, I recall seeing one of them talking to Keith Redmond, the former Fine Gael councillor. Yeah. And she was saying that no one had ever been able to explain to her how such a mechanism would work. And Keith tried to explain how markets function. Then she didn't get it. And he just started going, supply and demand. And it just did not sink true. Just did not seem to understand it. You did not need to have an advanced degree in economics to look at the history of house building in Ireland that took place after the crash and up till today to be able to say that we were heading for a housing crisis. It's so much so that I was talking to you about this five years ago, Gary. I remember, I, I even wrote, God, some, I probably wrote a blog about it. Five or six, I said, we are heading into a, high, a, a, a housing and homelessness crisis because we have absolute, there were some years where we were building less than a thousand completions in the country. When on average we should be expecting for our population, we should be having what, between 25,000 and 35,000 completions a year. Now there was an overhang surplus after the, after the, the boom, but that actually was absorbed pretty, pretty quickly. Demand was suppressed because the economy was suppressed because very large numbers of people were in debt, the, the market was not functioning, people weren't moving, they weren't buying or selling, and large numbers of people were staying at home because they, they they, did, they didn't have the money to move out and they didn't have a job. But once the economy corrected, the pent up demand was always going to come out. The people that were in the economy we were still a young population. And how you can say that there was no connection between the fact that there was no production on one side and then suddenly you've demand on the other side faced with no supply and that demand led to higher. How you can eat with a straight face come out and say, oh, no, the two are unconnected. It's all about it's all about other stuff. It's about social planning. It's about it's about the way the, the way we think about housing and earnings. That's just mad. We have been talking about this for so long that I think even on the podcast, the podcast hasn't run for that many years. No, I can recall us talking about how bad the ban on bedsits would be for housing supply, and how bad it would be for poor people who perhaps. When people went, oh, you don't have to live in a bedsit anymore, would say things like, but I can only afford a bedsit. Where do I live now? Or people who previously been been living in 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 low cost houses were now being for but and were low income families. You now are taking all those single people or, or students out. Say people were juniors in the civil service, people working in banks, young people who come up from the country, our students. You you kick them out of their bedsits. They're going to have to live somewhere, Gary. And this was not going to happen. They were now having to compete with those people who previously were were on low incomes who were were competing for this housing. They're now competing with all other sector of people who have actually got more disposable income for housing, and that wasn't going to affect them. How you thought, how you could possibly think you're going to take, we don't, we absolutely, we're not absolutely sure, but say 20,000 units of accommodation out of the Dublin housing market, and that wasn't going to affect 
the Dublin housing market. How could you possibly think that? How can you possibly think that you... Ronan Lyons wrote a paper, and I'm sick and tired of talking about this, I know, Gary, I'm sure people are sick and tired of listening to who estimated that you're talking about single-built houses, that regulations that have been brought in had increased the price of the build of that house by between thirty to €50,000. You've made the point before, one of the problems with this, is, oh, well, it pays for itself in the end. Yeah, but it's all front-loaded. The cost is all front-loaded to people at precisely the time when they do not have the money to be able to absorb the extra cost. It's useless to me to know that when I'm 60, this will my house will have paid for itself in the savings in heating when I'm 25 or 30 and I'm trying to buy the house. The thing, the, the great thing here is we know because of the limit on uh, mortgages, the, the, the salary cap on it, there are going to be those people who can just about get over that for the price of a house or to build a house. Every time you increase the, the build cost of a house, that line moves up and people who could previously have afforded a mortgage will now not even be allowed to get a mortgage by the bank. It simply won't be allowed to happen. So we know that happens. We just don't know the numbers of it. But we've been in incrementally increasing those prices for years. It's had to have an impact. We just cannot quantify it because we don't have enough data on it. You asked me for any... And can you give me an example of the kind of literacy? I'll give you another one, which is connected to the point I made before about the connection between market supply and demand. When you pointed, when you pointed out to people not that long ago, and well into what we have now come to call the homelessness crisis, well into that happening, that the retail price of a second-hand house in in most of Dublin, outside of places like D4 and D6, in most of Dublin, the retail price of a second-hand house was lower than the build cost of a new house in the same place. And yet you can then come along and say to me, actually, no, it's not about, it's not about cost or it's not about it's not about supply and demand. When you have created a situation where and you're saying, well, we don't understand why people aren't building. It's a failure in the market, Gary. The market is failing to supply. Yeah, the builders are not building because they can't sell a house at a profit because the, of, you have increased so radically the cost, to the, the cost to them of building the bloody house. The only time that they were going to start building was when you had sufficiently inflated the market that they were now in a position to get a margin on building a new house. And that was done by government fiat, not by anybody, not by the market. But again, every every intervention, it seems to me, that governments make when they get into this market, pretty well like anyone else, they make it more expensive, they make it more complex, they make it more opaque, they make it less transparent. And yet, they are willing to believe voodoo merchants and that will tell them, no, no, it's nothing to do with supply and demand. It's all about some technical thing. Oh, Christ. So just because we could talk on this for an endless amount of time, Michael, to just a short, you know, five minutes before we close up, RTE, climate change. Yes. RTE were taking a bit of a stick, a bit of stick over the last month or so. Critics were saying that they were not linking what would be called extreme weather events directly to climate change and making it explicit enough and talking about climate change and its impact to the extent that should be required in every news story. So you had the flooding in Germany, you had the recent heat wave. John Williams, who is the managing director of RTE News, had come out and made the point that um, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to say that any single weather event, like a flood or a heat wave, is caused by climate change. 
which intuitively makes sense. How would you know if that would have would or would not have happened in a different scenario? And you can't. And so he came out today and he apologised and said that RTE is going to get better, Michael. It's going to double down and it's going to make sure that those sort of problems don't happen again. Then he also gave a line of reasoning which was so obviously bullshit that I suspect even he doesn't expect people to believe it. He said one of the reasons they weren't covering climate change properly was because not enough people pay their um, license fee for their television license fee. And so RTE had to have a science and environment correspondent instead of an environment correspondent. And with the pandemic, George Lee has to report on COVID-19 and times are, you know, tight. Bit of a problem there in that RTE, despite losing money for the last God knows how many years, made money last year. They made nearly 8 million last year. But they also received well over 100 million in funding from the government from the license fee. So we don't have an environment correspondent because we don't have enough money. Well, you made 8 million last year and you received nearly 200 million from the government. So in that 200 million, you couldn't pay someone 35 grand? You just couldn't do it? But Gary... Pay the 35 grand for what? He says we were wrong not to make clear connection between recent extreme weather events and climate change. Sin of omission and reported in good faith, but truth matters. So when we get it wrong, we should say so. Lesson learned, work to do. Gary, yes, the truth does matter. The truth is, it is impossible to make a connection between climate change and the fact that we had 10 days of hot weather. And any Decent climate scientist will say that, and we'll say that regularly, that we should never confuse climate with weather. And the notion, truth matters. Well, then, Gary, we get a little bit closer to the truth because it, it continues. He wrote the article detailing how RT has and will be covering climate change. Every journalist on the news team, listen, will be taking part in a workshop looking at the climate science and the reporting of it. He said we, we, they will be creating a team dedicated to reporting the climate tri- crisis. Now, I'm I'm not utterly clear, Gary, that this is actually a statement about reporting the truth or reporting what they've decided is the pal- palatable thing to say to certain climate activists. We mentioned in the previous podcast that RTE is what, the only public broadcaster? The only state broadcaster who are signed up to an, a left-wing activist group called Covering Climate Now, who uh, they explicitly say they want to transform the media. What I think is interesting here, they say that every reporter is going to sit through a workshop on this. Yes. I'm going to send in a couple of requests to RTE to see who is doing that workshop, and I'd be very interested to see if it's Covering Climate Now or one of their people. This is, this is not, to me, about... Uh, 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 I'm not interested in getting into a debate about the nature of climate change. But simply on the face of it, this is just bull. We are wrong not to make a clear connection between ex- extreme weather events. With two days... It was very hot. We have had, actually, days which have been as hot in the past. We had, as people like to point out, 1976, when we had 100 days of weather. Nice weather. We were wrong not to make There is no clear connection. No decent scientist would say so. This is an example not of science. This is the opposite of science, Gary. This is post hoc proctor hoc. This happened 
before therefore this was caused by climate change happened this was this was caused by climate change this is magical thinking this is not scientific no this is the way human beings think certainly that's why not many human beings are scientists that's why we often get things messed up but this is not scientific thinking this is fallacious post hoc propter hoc thinking it's magical thinking and it's in response to pressure from activist groups you can put on all the climate stuff you want if you want i mean if you think that's what people are desperately going to de depart from watching sky sports or bbc3 and they're going to run to watch and consume everything rt does because they're producing more and more high quality material on climate change if you think that's where the market is fire ahead don't go around telling me that as when when we have a particularly cold snap next February, oh, by the way, the next four days of temperature is going to be under four degrees and that's caused by climate change because you don't know that. And as the man says, the truth is important. Yeah, but then he ends his article with what I was saying about the finances. And the reason I brought that up, and there are sort of two things in this article. One, there's the thing about the journalism. Two, there's the stuff about the finances. And I just don't believe that, Michael. That's bullshit. That's just him whinging about the fact that people aren't paying their licence fees. And it's a way of saying to the government two things. Listen, and to the to the reading public, well, people should pay their licence fees. And just be, and because lots of people aren't, we should actually increase the licence fee, you know, so that we get we get actually a, globe, a larger global in, uh, income, e even allowing for the fact for those fees that are unpaid in order to give you a basic public service. Well, here's the thing. Let's assume, let's assume it is true. How would it be true? That would require RTE to have taken, last year it was $196 million from licence fee revenue. And RTE's executives would have decided that environment is actually not worth the cost of a correspondent. And that they have been doing this for years while making well over $100 million every year, and have consistently decided that it's not worth this. That's the only way this can be true. But on the face of it, it appears to simply be a lie. And so obvious a lie, that I don't know why you'd expect anyone to believe it. And also, actually, to make the point, if RTE have decided that with $196 million, it's not worth investing in an environment correspondent, that's not due to people not paying the licence fee. That's a decision RTE have made. And if they were to get two hundred and fifty million because people paid the license fee, they might still make that decision. I suspect, Gary. I suspect that there may be savings that could be affected within the way RTE is run that might squeeze enough money out for an environment correspondent if they really wanted one. But that would affect, shall we say, traditional works, practices, and culture that would meet with resistance in the happy family that is RTE. And I use the family word advisedly. But the reason I, I, I bring it up really is, if you're going to do this, and you're going to say we're going to do this in the interest of truth, and truth matters, and ethical reporting, and all of that thing, and then the bottom part of your piece is something which on the face of it looks like total horseshit, to <laughs> such a degree that it appears you are lying to people. Is there, there's a bit of a disconnect between the start of the piece and the end. And I mean, Michael, if you're going to lie to people in your piece about how people should trust you because you're not going to lie to them, that doesn't bode very well. 
Gary, what do you want me to say? You want me to defend RTE and their practices and say that the man is telling, obviously, telling the truth and there's a crisis and we need to get in there and we need more funding for them and we should be sending all those people who aren't paying their residency fees off to the joy for 12 months and make it a bloody example of them. And they're all probably right-wing nuts anyway, you know, the likes of them that go around not paying their license fees. We should we should have a Rolls-Royce of an RTE. It should be getting 300, 350 million. I mean, I don't pay my license fee, but I don't own a TV, so... Ah, well, that won't last very long. One of these days they'll come along and say, yeah, but you have a computer. You have to pay for that. Yeah, I'm, yeah, and you see, when they do that, then I'll legitimately have to think of, do I dislike RTE enough to go to prison over it? I'd swing towards the yes on that. <laughs> you want to talk about optics, Michael? I love the optics yeah. of a journalist being jailed because they refuse to give money to RTE because they don't believe they meet the ethical standards required. <laughs> well, I, I hope that day doesn't come too soon because I'm not visiting you. I've seen all those films they make about prison and frankly, Gary, none of those films work. I have not watched one film about prison that's made me want to go there. Given the current state of the Irish prison system, I would probably be told to go there and then told to go home. Well, that, has, that, has, that happened to somebody recently last year, didn't it? That's happened that, a few uh, times. That they arrived at the door and the, the joy locked and they said, I'm sorry, we're full. Can you come back next week? I think the joy probably has, is like the better hotels in Dublin. If you want to be in for the weekend, you have to guarantee that you'll be there for at least three days. You can offer to sleep in the stables, find a manger. Yeah, that's scary for you, Gary. I can imagine you in Bethlehem. And what's your breakfast like? Anyway, on that bombshell, Gary Kavner promises to go to prison. I promise nothing. <laughs> I said I had an inclination. <laughs> Guy promises nothing, but has an inclination. And on that bombshell, I think we'll say goodbye for now. And we shall be back on Friday. By which time, by the way, climate change apparently will have affected temperatures of around 17 to 18 degrees with rain. Which is obviously very weird for Ireland in the summer. All the best.